welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined by a new interlocutor, one of my internet friends from Twitter, Lafayette Lee, he goes by, for a conversation about Cormac McCarthy on the occasion of his recent death, and specifically about the movie No Country for Old Men, the most famous of the several adaptations to screen of his novels and of his plays, and of course, uh, original screenplays also. Uh, McCarthy was fairly prolific, uh, especially in the last uh, 30 years of his life since the 90s, and uh, quite a number of his works have therefore also found their way to the screen since he was also very popular in the last third of his life. I think the movie that is likeliest to impress people is No Country for Old Men, which was uh, filmed in 2007, so 15 years ago, still somehow famous in pop culture, still something people will uh, make reference to quote from or at least make memes about. And perhaps, therefore, it's how America thinks about McCarthy primarily now. People who love his novels tend to point to Blood Meridian as the greatest, but uh, we're we're going to go with No Country for Old Men here. This was quite a success financially, but not a blockbuster. But it was nominated for eight Oscars and won four of them. Indeed, the directors, the Coen brothers, won three as producers, best picture, and then the director and screenwriters awards as well. And the fourth winner was Javier Bardem for playing evil-embodied Anton Chigur. This is the fame of the movie, this portrayal of evil, its relationship to willfulness, to chance, and to determinism. And therefore, the idea that maybe evil comes out of realizing that there's no such thing as being human. It's just a delusion. Uh, So... This is, to some extent, the the film's reputation and his power of attraction has to do with, as often is the case in the Cormac McCarthy novels, fascinating and at the same time repulsive portrayals of evil and therefore forcing the audience to consider why we have such strong moral reactions and what must this ugliness say about our love of what is beautiful or noble or just. And uh, this is... That to which we shall turn our uh, discussion today. But first, uh, Lafayette, let you introduce yourself, since it's our first conversation on the podcast. I followed you for a while on Twitter. It's uh, often entertaining. How should our audience uh, think about you? Please introduce yourselves. Well, thank you very much, Titus. I really do appreciate the invitation. I'm honored to be here. As Titus mentioned, to those of you who are listening, um, I go by Lafayette Lee. It's this, it's a pen name that I, I use mostly on social media and for my writing. As uh, Titus mentioned, I you can find me over on Twitter. That's probably the most accessible thing. Uh, it's at partisan underscore O. I go by Lafayette Lee there. I've been involved kind of on the social media scene uh, after leaving the army. And so I'm a little new to Twitter compared to many old standbys, but uh, I've been there for the last several years, and um, I do a little bit of writing on a Substack over Ruins. It's uh, <laughs> ruins.substack.com, um, and then I also am involved with I am 1776. I'm an, a contributing editor there, and so some of the pieces which I have uh, published, especially uh, anything dealing with like literature or film, I usually, you can find any of that work over there, including this recent 
a piece about Cormac McCarthy that I wrote and got Titus involved, uh, Titus and I talking. But apart from that, you know, my background is just, uh, like I mentioned, I'd, I've been in the military. What I usually reference is uh, probably the most important thing about me is I'm a husband and father. I'm an American uh, here for many, many generations. My roots are in the West and in the South, but I love this country. I love uh, the people in it. And I, I feel like we're in a very special time. It's a very special time to be alive. And I'm just grateful to be here and a part of that. Perhaps part of uh, uh, McCarthy's intention as a writer was to reflect on this uh, transformation in America, you could say maybe from the 60s, but uh, you can think about it in other ways as well. And uh, therefore, to show people who are uh, deeply patriotic what the size and scope of the problem is, or put otherwise to, to, to give them a vision and to play on their passions, on their emotions, in such a way as to wake them up to the, the kind of trouble that McCarthy seems to have uh, been thinking about for most of his life. He was a child of the South, grew up in Tennessee, and uh, settled in the southwestern desert in New Mexico, and it seems like the disconnection between the South and the West was very strong in his mind, and it's no longer something, I think, obvious. In, say, a uh, hundred years back or so, this was fairly obvious to lots of artists, and it was common in the golden era of the Western to, to think about it. So this connection is has a lot to do with the romanticism and, in a way, the aristocratic allure of the South, but also with the fear that maybe there's something tragic in America. The, the Southerners are much likelier, above all Faulkner, to think that maybe there is something tragic in America uh, than, than are the Northerners, uh, not least of all because the North was not conquered and the North won. And, uh, and so... I think the, the, the power of so many uh, Southern writers has to do with this suggestion that maybe they see something in America the conquering Northerners don't. This is, in a way, a Northerner America. It is the Union. It is continental democracy. It's, um, it's, it's, it's uh, greatest standard bearer is Lincoln. But there's another side to America, harsh and, in a way, unforgiving and uh, in certain ways, a side that opens up the thought that maybe there's something irredeemable in uh, in human suffering. And uh, Cormac McCarthy is perhaps the specialist in the second half of the 20th century in stories that hint at that problem. And No Country for Old Man is maybe his most obvious political treatment of the problem. This is uh, a bit of my thinking about the relationship between the South, the West, the Western, and uh, McCarthy. Uh, Lee, please tell me, how did you get to think about uh, McCarthy? How did you discover his writing and No Country for Old Men, especially? No, I think that was a beautiful introduction to, to McCarthy's writing and why it's so, I think, powerful to, especially to an American audience. Um, I was introduced to Cormac McCarthy's writing Around the time I'd heard, I had read one of his books prior to joining the military. Um, but during my time in the military, I uh, I was in in between a lot of grueling training, and so I would always be able to have a book with me, and I would often pack uh, either Starship Troopers from Heinlein 
or I would pack Cormac McCarthy. Those were kind of my two go-tos. And so during my time, probably about in the space of a year or two, uh, when I was in the army, I read all of the border trilogy. I read Blood Meridian for a second time. And I read No Country for Old Men several times as well. Uh, I'm a big fan of the film. I think the film is excellent. I would say it's probably as close to a perfect film as you can get. Um, I think the Coen brothers did a fantastic job. And I've actually, there are things within the film that I find to be superior to the book. And I know that's blasphemous to say, but I find that these are, even though I have a deep respect for Cormac McCarthy and I love the book, I think the Coen brothers are true artists. They're able to drive some powerful themes that I think uh, that they emphasize a little more so than the book and open some questions that I think are very important to Americans. But one of the things that I think is really important, as you mentioned before, that connection between the South and the West is there is a sense of tragedy in the South. Um, something that I've I've written about and remarked on is that Southern writers have this understanding of, of the tragic in a very American sense. There's a fascination with things like decay and the grotesque, being disoriented, uh, being dislocated, displaced. These these themes are very strong in a lot of Southern writing. Many readers will be familiar with Southern Gothic. You know, Flannery O'Connor is excellent. Um, great writer with that. Faulkner obviously draws upon these themes. And I think where I, I see that Cormac McCarthy in his writing was very much steeped in this approach to literature. These themes are very present in his books. But there's also something a little different that I feel as a reader that drove him into writing about the West, because there is a unique aspect to the West and to Western writing, which was almost tailor-made for McCarthy at this point in his trajectory as a writer. And the connection between the, the South and the West is very fascinating. Um, the South was pivotal in the expansion westward. I don't think a lot of uh, people understand, even in this country, how important what the future and the destiny of the West was to the central conflict of the Civil War. Often we focus primarily on the aspect of slavery, which absolutely has a major impact on the reason, you know, the, what pushed these two civilizations, because that's really what they were, into, into, into fighting really to, to the death. And, you know, the Civil War is really the first war that you have an unconditional surrender um, and that, in many ways, it could be said that that spread throughout the world and it shaped the First World War, shaped the Second World War, and it will shape every conflict to come afterwards. But it kind of starts in the Civil War between these two civilizations. And the battle really at, at its heart is what is the future of the country? What is it going to look like? What's the destiny of the West? And the South and the North had a very different um, approach onto how that was going to look. They saw a very different vision. For someone like McCarthy, this would have been, I think, very present in his mind. Anybody who grows up in Tennessee knows who Davy Crockett, uh, Andrew Jackson, a lot of these heroes of the of the old Southwest who pushed into these, you know, disparate frontiers on the edge of the Southern civilization, opened up new places, new trade, new commerce. There was a many different groups of people living there, including natives, including French, the Spanish. It was a hotly contested area, and it really did shape the future of the nation. And so for a Tennessean, for somebody of that area, you know, in that part of the South, the Southwest, the old Southwest, the relationship between the frontier, between the natives, peoples that lived there, between 
you know, expansion out into Texas and into New Mexico and Arizona. This has always been very present in the culture, I think, in the South, is understanding themselves as a frontier people in many ways. And so this connection between the South and the West is very important. They're not as disconnected as I think a lot of people would think. And one of the things about the South and the West that I think also unites at the unites them at the end of the war is the South is, is conquered and they undergo a dramatic political, economic, and social transformation. But at the same time this was happening, the West was being transformed. And this is very important to remember is that, you know, as the railroads that going into the Civil War, as we said, Civil War, there were railroads in the South, but that was one of the advantages that the North had is that they had a lot of railways that were able to transport people, personnel, and material to the armies, uh, get people moved from one location to the next. The South did not have that kind of infrastructure. At the war's end, many of these companies and organizations, individuals who had ties to the administration, were able to expand that reach out West. And you start to see this sense of the West, which almost had this infinite character about it, suddenly becoming contained. Suddenly, they are undergoing dramatic economic, political, and social transformation as well. And you have this beautiful, romantic, you know, as we look at it today, perspective of those who were holding on to their way of life before, who wanted to keep things open, that were living in the wild and flourishing in the wild. There's a major contest between some of these people that were feeling displaced, dislocated. There's a, a sense of freedom that was being constrained. And this later gets felt in different ways as fences start coming up across the West, as the railways cut through the heart of the West, as new people start flooding into the West. And there is this nostalgia that exists, the old West. And it's very similar to the nostalgia of the old South in the sense of something being lost to these dramatic forces. And I think that this has created just a, a rich literature. It's quite explored in Southern literature, but I don't think enough focus is given to how it influences the culture and the art that you find in the West. But Cormac McCarthy seems to unite these things. He seems to be able to drive into this sense of, of loss that in every one of his novels, there's this sense of loss and um, a romantic, almost a romantic struggle against the indifference of nature, against dramatic transformation, um, against the loss of a way of life. And I just find that, especially in No Country for Old Men, to be ever present. It's very powerful. One last thing I'll mention here, <laughs> the focus on violence is very important. You see this in Southern literature as well. You see this in your literature from the, the West, or the Old West is that violence is a very permanent feature. It's something that is decisive. There's even like a the code of the duel, which you will see in the South, but also in the West, you know, gunfighters and this as these things are very common between these two cultures and civilizations. It's no coincidence that many parts of the Old West that I think Americans don't realize were settled by like Southerners and by ex-Confederates. You have places like Tucson, you have places like Southern California, and kind of this rebellious freedom, liberty culture, I guess, and that massive creativity that explodes from these different places. A lot of this was kind of engendered and pushed through by Southerners who had, were fleeing the South, you know, the collapse of the Southern society. And so I think these things are very important. And I love that McCarthy ties them into almost a bow. Yeah, I think maybe, especially this issue of freedom, that somehow requires a, a lot of discretion, a lot of room for human beings to act, 
and therefore a certain weakness in the laws and a certain weakness in the community. Uh, that's, I think, the most obvious thing that brings the South and the West together. The Western hero we, we, we love from the movies is, after all, often more of a Southern aristocratic figure than he is a, a, a Northerner. That's, uh, see, the difference between John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. The future of the West is disputed between a more Southern and a more Northern version of uh, manliness. And uh, it is the Northerner who is a lawyer who wants to bring the law and the Declaration of Independence to uh, Arizona. The Southerner is uh, happier as a rancher, in a way, a man by himself, able to thrive in the desert. So that, I think, is uh, one reason why, uh, as you say, there's something romantic. And uh, therefore, the South might be a, a better way to look at this American problem. I think if you were to tell, at least up until recently, Americans what's a literary figure that's uh, all about this romantic uh, hatred of nature, they would have said uh, Ahab. They would have pointed to Moby Dick, to Herman Melville, a very northern guy. But still a man who was, Melville, very interested in the ongoing democratization of America in the mid-19th century, in the post-Andrew Jackson America. Freedom and democracy are all American themes, but they look different if you look at it from the South. The Western, too, is an all-American genre. It goes back at least to James Fenimore Cooper and uh, Deerslayer and uh, Last of the Mohicans when the West was, uh, say, upstate New York or the Ohio River Valley. But uh, that pushing westward of the frontier, of course, stops with the ocean, stops with California. And then America is bound by the uh, railroads, by the telegraph, and, of course, by the laws of the Union. And some of that freedom that you get in this literature is uh, turned into something more nostalgic, backward-looking, like watching these great John Wayne Westerns in the 1950s or 60s, long after the closing of the border. But of course, there's another way to look at the, the problem of freedom and the, 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 the kinds of choices and kinds of actions that men take. After the country is unified and there's no more frontier, uh, men who have these uh, desires or these urges become criminals. And this is, uh, of course, what happens in No Country for Old Men. The story, very briefly, is set in 1980 in uh, southwest Texas, near the border with Mexico. And uh, it, it follows three major characters. Josh Brolin plays a Vietnam veteran, Llewellyn Moss, a young, manly man, in a way, a very impressive uh, American, because he is almost at home in the desert. Starts the movie hunting in the desert, uh, hiking at ease in this uh, infinite, indifferent, deadly environment. And uh, you wonder, what could be a problem for such a man? He, he runs accidentally into a result of the already prospering drug trade. A bunch of people with drugs and a bunch of people with money are all slaughtered by their pickup trucks. And uh, Moss can't help himself. He takes the money, doesn't take the drugs, but he takes the money. It's, uh, it's part of American freedom. Everybody wants money. It's, it's, it's a shocking association. Corpses, this, this terrible uh, uh, drug trade, blood everywhere, and the money. But uh, he doesn't let this phase him. Perhaps he's a Vietnam veteran, 
he has already seen quite a few things. Uh, he, he doesn't react in the way perhaps the audience might react. But once he uh, takes this fateful step, then these two other men, in a way, enter his life. There's a, a good guy and a bad guy. It's, uh, in a way, a Western. Sheriff Ed Tom Bell, uh, played by Tommy Lee Jones in the movie, wants to help Moss and his young wife, Carla Jean. He realizes that the cartels will come looking for that money. Assassins will be sent. It will be terrible. And uh, then there is indeed the terrible evil Anton Chigur, played by um, Javier Bardem, who wants to get the money back and to kill everybody involved also. In between El Paso and uh, a few other uh, small towns in South Texas and uh, one in Mexico across the border, uh, in, you see play out uh, in a way of a small Western drama. But in another way, it's, it's a question about American character and it's a question about what place manliness has anymore. In, 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 uh, in America as it is in 1980. Uh, the fourth man, another um, bounty hunter or assassin uh, played by Woody Harrelson, Carson Wells, he is also a Vietnam veteran and special forces operator. Of course, the sheriff was once himself a veteran, but that was back in World War II. American manliness has long been tied up with the military it's the most obvious way to for, for young patriotic men to turn in their love of honor. But now all of these men who have fought wars see something alike to war happen on the American border. And of course, in 2023, it's still happening. And in a way, it's never been as bad as it is today. So Cormac McCarthy's novel, the movie, the Coen Brothers movie, they're uh, unfortunately very timely. But perhaps even nowadays, people would be find it difficult to think of what is happening at the border in terms of war. America, since the Civil War, has been above and beyond war somehow, an untouchable place. And yet, uh, McCarthy suggests through this story that America might be much more vulnerable to corruption than people realize and might not have the, the warlike ability to defend itself. So uh, that's my brief overview of the plot and some of the uh, finer points of characterization. It's largely a story about manliness and its confrontation with evil. Uh, that said, uh, Lee, where shall we start our discussion? I think uh, a great a great place to start, I think, is even where the book kind of begins in the film as well. There's a scene that I really like that I think sets everything up very well. And I believe it it shows this archetypical American, very Western, almost heroic type that we have. And that was is within Llewellyn's hunting for antelope out in the middle of nowhere. There's a it's it becomes clear later on. He seems to be trespassing, hunting on land. He's not supposed to. He's very much very well could be poaching. But he takes this long shot. And I don't know how many listeners have hunted, but uh, I've dabbled in it myself growing up. Hunting, you know, especially on these open, wide open spaces, which are, you know, very common out, out west and not as common, you know, back east. You Oftentimes you have the option to take these long shots. It takes a great deal of skill. Um, you do a lot of waiting. You have to, you know, you're not doing as much stalking as much as you're tracking and monitoring your quarry. And you will often take long shots. Now, some shots you will take and others you will you will wait. 
And Llewellyn has this incredibly long shot to take. Now, we know that he's his background, like you brought up, he's from Vietnam. He was a sniper, I believe. But instead of maybe waiting for the antelope, the herd of antelope to come closer, Llewellyn decides to take the shot. And I think that's a really important moment in the film and the book because it shows Llewellyn and who he is. Llewellyn is somebody who will take a big risk. He's somebody who will who will try to reach further than his grasp. And that is played out throughout the book and throughout the film for the remainder of it. But it all starts with this shot he takes. And if you recall from the film, if you've seen the film, is that he wounds the animal but doesn't kill it. And so he has to, and this is common in, in hunting a lot of the time, if you're hunting like mule deer out west, you might hit it and it might, you know, run and you'll have to actually track its blood trail. And this is very, you know, this happens in hunting. But see, Llewellyn has to go very, very far because he's taken this shot. You know, maybe another hunter would pass on, would not think that they could hit it, but he goes for it. He tries to reach beyond his grasp. And I think we we see this play out through the film and it kind of sets up Llewellyn as a character who I believe is an archetype for the for our American hero or anti-hero even is somebody who pushes beyond their limits. They tempt fate. There's almost like a Promethean quality about it, that they're willing to steal fire. And we know throughout the book and through the movie that this decision kicks off just a, a, a race, a, a breakneck speed to almost escape the consequences of one's actions. And I believe that this does tail back into what you talked about is that, you know, we Americans have been able to conquer and master so many different things. We conquered one of the most inhospitable places on earth. We've moved armies in the most inhospitable co continent on earth. Um, we've tried to control and master the world in many ways, transform the world around us. But as No Country for Old Men shows is that when we do reach, you know, this old warning that comes from the ancient authors is that when we do try to reach beyond our grasp, that there are consequences that often come far later and it can turn something that seems like a triumph into a tragedy. And I believe that is at the heart of this novel. Yes, I think so. Lulin is, it's also obviously, what would people say in the this somewhat silly jargon we use, underemployed. This man has, uh, what, what must he have seen and done in war? And then he comes back to Thrill County, Texas, and... There isn't really anything for him to do there. And he might not be interested in doing something, uh, how would people put it, uh, constructive or productive. He has, in the, in the novel, he has some kind of job. He's a welder or something like that, an electrician, but uh, no, welder, uh, but uh, not something that can speak to his manly passions. And on the other hand, it's America, so uh, there is nothing to stop those manly passions either. He, is, he can't reconcile himself to the situation he's in, but he also can't make something out of it. Some, some tempting of fate seems like the only way out of that impasse. And, uh, and of course, like uh, so many other, uh, let's say essentially all young Americans are brought up to believe that the sky's the limit. The world's theirs for the taking. That somehow the greatness and achievements of America have to do directly with their potential and their opportunities. But of course, there is this other side of things that uh, it's also real that uh, America is uh, an enormously powerful empire in a way, something that has never existed before. But that doesn't mean that uh, any individual American matters. 
And of course, that's uh, the, the, that is what uh, breaks a man's heart. What is there that's more important than love of honor? Not For men, there might not be. And in a strange sense, it is, it is that love of honor that is shown in stealing money. It might not be immediately obvious, but, uh, but, but if you think about it, when people complain about injustices, they will often complain about uh, people having what they do not deserve and suggesting in some way that they deserve things that they do not receive. Uh, and of course, uh, stealing money from uh, the cartels somehow is an act of daring, so manly, and it is not a crime. It happens in the desert where there is no law. The And another thing about Llewellyn that is shown here, part of the catastrophe he is in has to do with the fact that he goes back to the scene of the crime. He, he, he gets the money, he gets out, uh, but then he, he can't help but think about what he's seen. The moral importance of the fact, I think, and surely its consequences, he's curious. And so he gets back in his truck and he goes out in the middle of the night. He knows where to go in the desert. And uh, he runs into some of these uh, cartel uh, assassins. Uh, and then it's his first run in with how deadly the situation is going to get. But he escapes. And from that moment on, he's on the run. And of course, separated from his wife at the same time. So I think you're right that there's something in that opening scene, what happens on the hunt. And of course, how he becomes prey himself and how that is associated with his manly daring and with his despair at his uh, uselessness in a way. And this need to do something daring, to do something that perhaps has permanent irreversible consequences, to act, to be a man, not merely a creature of circumstance. I love that. And I think one other element that I believe is very, very important here too, that fortifies kind of what you're saying is that there's like almost a fetish uh, with objects in McCarthy's book here. And then there's Llewellyn relies very much heavily on his skills and his weapons to survive. You know, there's kind of this, and this runs, this is a, an interesting thing, I think, in a context of the West with these infinitely vast spaces where no law exists but maybe you would say the law of the gun. There's objects and they play a very prominent role here, not only in enticing Llewellyn to go on this, on this tragic you know, pursuit of money and to escape, but even with Shigur and his, his cattle gun, prioritizing these, these objects, that there's almost a fetish quality about them and your tempting fate. But this is very prominent, I think, in the West. I, you know, the story of the West in many parts is people that are enticed by something, some object, some material thing, whether it's gold. This is one of the most impactful discoveries in our history is when gold was discovered at Sutter's Mill. You see a massive influx of people from all over the world, really, to Montana, when gold is found there during the Civil War. Um, you also see these discoveries of, of a very valuable or important object, some material thing. Um, really shaped the West. And it really tells us a lot about, I think, Llewellyn, also about, you know, the his arch nemesis is that this does revolve around money and this money is is from drugs. And I, I love that you mentioned the fact that Llewellyn hasn't necessarily broken a law. You know, he's stolen blood money. And this is something that I think is 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 just such a great touch, especially when we, you know, try to understand the West, is that in this in the West and the history of the West, that there is this 
there's the the blood you know the blood of of thousands and of people is it's all throughout the west and it disappears so quickly and it even disappears from our memory um this is something that i think really is is driven home by um sheriff bell in in that he understands that his you know that he comes from a blood soaked part of the united states but in a way it it shocks him to revisit this and there's a conversation obviously later when he starts to kind of ruminate a little bit on where his people came from and what had to be done to to win this land for them and their their descendants um it's it's it can be almost dizzying to revisit that as somebody like sheriff bell to see that you know this this concept of blood money of these objects that have a fetish quality about them what it costs and what it takes you know from those who have them but also from those who pursue them um, I think that that's just a really powerful theme throughout the book. Yes, indeed. Uh, and, and in that sense, Sheriff Bell is a very good contrast for Llewellyn. Uh, it, it's his old, he's in his early 60s, Llewellyn is barely 30, comes from a different generation, really from a different America. They fought different kinds of wars that had different consequences for America. Um, but it's also a, a matter of character. Sheriff Bell is uh, so useful for reflecting on the, the transformation of America, this new incredibly wealthy country where anything can be had for the right amount of money, it sometimes seems, and where people begin to do these uh, horrifying things for money, as uh, the, the, the slaughter in the desert shows. He is largely immune to that. He lived the life of a man in a small town, almost venerates his father and this piety, filial piety, piety towards the ancestors is very rare in America, especially, uh, of course, in 1980 or nowadays. He's, he seems like a man from a different century. He's recognizably American, not a man from a different country, but, but the country has changed around him. He recognizes less and less. He is more and more given, as all people are, to, to, to remember things, to live on his reminiscences. But he is still a man of action, and he compares uh, the America he was uh, uh, brought up into, the America he has in his small uh, county, try to protect, including from its own worst instincts. And he's, of course, very displeased with what he sees, precisely because of this transformation. Uh, in venerating his father, Sheriff Bell identifies the virtue of a man largely with obedience to the law and fulfillment of duty in relation to the law. Whereas uh, Duolin, as his desert hunting shows, largely lives outside of the law. And I think it's part of McCarthy's suggestion that modern Americans don't care that much about the law. This was something that mattered deeply before, but somehow the transformations of the 20th century led people to think of freedom as freedom from law as such. Hence the, the distinction between the sheriff who is almost pious, as I said, about his uh, father and his elders and the way of life before, about the job of sheriff to a certain extent, or at least the old sheriffs who were impressive, and the, the, these other people. It's, it's, it's a remarkable choice of a character to have, uh, Sheriff Bell, and uh, it, I think... Uh, McCarthy and the Cohen brothers and Tommy Lee Jones deserve a lot of credit for pulling it off because it is a very difficult thing to do. 
It is not the kind of character one uh, reads about or sees in movies it's because it's not something Americans nowadays are proud of. And uh, and, and so that, that somehow affects the character. He can be uh, dutiful, duty-bound. He can uh, show this nobility, but only in this very small, out-of-the-way place, Turtle County in Texas. He somehow acts on a very small scale, which says something about the changing character of the country. And, and yet McCarthy thinks that he's a fit object for the nation to contemplate. The reader should be thinking about this. What was that older America when, in which moral virtue counted so much? That's part of what uh, Sheriff Bell means in insisting that in the past, sheriffs didn't even necessarily carry a gun. There were times when uh, people were uh, law-abiding. And that was the, uh, an appeal to shame. There's certain things you'd be ashamed to do, not to fear, not to the sheriff's gun. The, the remarkable uh, thing about the sheriff is that although he embodies these older virtues, the moral virtues, he, he is somehow removed from that violent American past. America was violent in the past and is violent again, but somehow not exactly in his lifetime. In a certain way, he was charmed, and uh, the and therefore there is something remarkably gentle in Sheriff Bell. I think that with Sheriff Bell, he is he d- is a definitely a stand-in for an older America. That what I love about this is that McCarthy he compels the reader to grapple with several things at once that are very important. I think to us today, in a political sense, there's a there's a tendency for us. For many of us who are very critical of the of the present and some of the uh, the collapse and decay, to assume that we can return to the way things were, to kind of cling to this older form, the older moral code, and to say if we can just reimpose this or refine, rediscover this, that we can overcome these these problems. I think McCarthy deals with this tendency a lot, especially through Sheriff Bell, and one of the things that I think is very poignant about that is Sheriff Bell's own, own experience. You know, he, this is very much a, a novel that, that explores in some ways the Vietnam war without, you know, being too, too overt about it and its relationship to the second world war and what, how that reflects in the American culture and some of our social values um, that are tied up in both of these conflicts. Uh, you know, as you recall, Sheriff Bell is a, ver- a world war II veteran but at the same time, he carries a, a great deal of guilt. And when we think about guilt, we often associate that strictly with the Vietnam War and the guilt and shame as a nation that we feel. But it's interesting that Sheriff Bell, who comes from the, the good war, as many Americans look at it, you know, this is the good war that Sheriff Bell carries around with him a great deal of guilt. You don't hear much of that coming from from uh, Llewellyn Moss. You don't hear that coming from uh, some of the other veterans from Vietnam in the book. They don't they hardly even remark on this aspect of Vietnam, but this is very present in Sheriff Bell's character. I think he also has in the book, he talks about losing a daughter. There's also seems to be a sense of guilt there that might even be tied up into how he, you know, seems to conflate itself with his experience as a veteran, you know, and that Sheriff Bell, even as a as a decorated veteran who was uh, came home, was very successful, started a family was able to become the sheriff of the, you know his county that he met, that he's in that he carries around this guilt that he did not deserve the medals that he he won 
that he he's ashamed of a sense of cowardice that he feels that he has and he holds on to throughout the book. I think this is a really interesting way to look at the prior generation. And going back to what I said about our our desire to return, you know, this is a normal thing. Many people feel this. But, you know, in the sense of character, uh, Sheriff Bell's character is he recognizes in a lot of ways that this that some of these things that have that have fallen asunder can't really be recovered. And even if they could be, they wouldn't be able to withstand the forces that he is dealing with. They're not adequate for this. And it's interesting, though, that even in that understanding and realization, there's a step further that he recognizes that the people who laid down the roots that, you know, that he comes from in that same region, that they were that they were having to operate in this incredibly lawless, bloody um, place that they they imposed order in a place without any order in a place that was ever, you know, every bit as violent and chaotic as this strange force that seems to be seeping into his own community. And this, in in a way, this kind of goes back to his sense of dislocation. As he realizes this, he realizes that he is almost in his experience and his life, his generation is an anomaly. And I just, I think that that's another powerful thing that McCarthy brings to the table here is because for so long, I think that we as Americans have looked at the great, we call them the greatest generation. And I, and I honor them as well. You know, these are my own grandparents and great grandparents that were involved in this time and that have shaped the world that I live in. But we have a romantic view of this that in many ways it's hard for us to understand that this is this was an anomalous uh, point in American history. This was really the beginning of empire. And this was the beginning of, of, of America transforming in a way that older generations would not necessarily have recognized. And with all the prosperity and with, you know, the, uh, you know, you have the really the birth of like the American middle class and and uh, Americans are able to buy goods from almost anywhere. Kids are eating ice cream. I mean, these are like we look at this very fondly. Even those of us who never experienced it, we just look at this transformation, a very positive light. We want to return to this as things become more chaotic and as the economic picture looks more bleak. But this was an anomalous period in American history is certainly for the West and that Sheriff Bell, I think, recognizes this and sees that he's a man out of step with this historical progression, um, very much founded in violence and bloodshed, and seems to be returning to that same place that his ancestors had escaped from. And I, I just I think that this is so powerful to Americans today because McCarthy isn't dealing with our Whig view of history. He's not just talking about the the myth of progress. He's really finding a cyclical uh, rhyme to history that is so very American that I think in many ways we have thought we've overcome this. Americans could build anything. We could defeat anyone. We could impose our will on anything uh, through our own creativity, ingenuity, by pursuing something like money. We could leave the old morality of the you know old world behind us. Um, but McCarthy finds that there's a cyclical uh, rhyme to history. And that we aren't really as far, we haven't really escaped this or transcended it as far as we think. And all this comes through abundantly clear in the character of Sheriff Bell and as he thinks and imagines and remembers and has dreams. Yeah, uh, you could say that as opposed to how the West was won, No Country for Old Men is about how the West may be being lost. It's not uh, certain that America will stay America. It's not obvious that uh, change is progress. 
Sheriff Bell, of course, primarily is aware of changes that shock him because he has volunteered on behalf of the community to see the worst that life has to offer, so to speak. He is a sheriff. He has to stare evil in the eye. He he has, in a strange way, a privileged position to witness something that he didn't think would happen. It's important to see that a man of his accomplishments and of his moral virtues is not intellectually at all prepared for what's happening. America has transformed. He didn't quite see it coming. And, uh, of course, doesn't really have uh, opinions about what to do about it. But he's surprised at what has come out of his fellow countrymen. He didn't know it was in there. Maybe he thought Americans were more or less like him or would be tolerably like him. But they're not. There are all sorts of things in the American heart, and not all of them bear revealing in polite company. And the, the this surprised awareness on his behalf is, in a way, a moral judgment on the country. America was supposed to be civilized. It was supposed to bring the law into this lawless land, and it was supposed to achieve something impressive. But of course, mid-century America, above all, was an America of moral and technological triumphs, of technological triumphs, a booming population, more democracy and equality, more personal freedom for people in various ways. And and yet all of those transformations also came with a a strange, unexpected decadence. That's what the, the, the drugs suggest, because they are so connected to the to the money and to the violence, to the murders, to the various horrors that take place in the novel. And, and of course, the movie reproduces them uh, in, in a fairly cold-blooded way. And so the, the story needs Sheriff Bell to have a kind of standard, but it does not take his point of view. Uh, it, it shows all these sorts of things that surprise him and which he does not understand. It, it does not have his sensibility. There is nothing gentle in this movie. He is, in fact, really the only character you can say that about. And so from, from that point of view, you could say that what's wrong, what, what the story suggests is wrong, is that these veterans, Moss and uh, Sheriff Bell, can't get along, can't act together. If they were to have acted together, they perhaps would have triumphed. There is a reason to think that they had enough experience, skill, and vim to, to do it. Mandiness might have won if it still had an alliance to the law. But this is not the case. It's not possible. The country has changed too much. Freedom has somehow come to mean freedom from law. And so that's one alliance that is impossible. It's somehow suggested by the fact that uh, Moss crosses the border into Mexico for a hospital. Uh, he, he is badly wounded in a shootout with the evil Shigur, and uh, he needs to patch himself up, or rather to be patched up, and uh, he crosses into Mexico. The, and that leads to his second encounter and his second potential alliance with uh, another American veteran, another manly man, which might lead them again to survive. By the way, Sheriff Bell survives the story. Llewellyn Moss does not. He is murdered eventually. And so is this uh, man who comes proposing an alliance, uh, the bounty hunter for for anybody who would pay, I suppose, this assassin, uh, Carson Wells. 
he tracks Moss to his hospital and comes offering an alliance on, on the basis of mutual need and mutual advantage. It's, uh, it, it's all done for the money. And therefore, in a way, should be an easier thing to do. By that point, Moss has faced uh, the evil Shigur. He realizes that it's uh, a terror. Uh, he's barely escaped with his life. And he, he should know by now that he needs help. Here's uh, another fairly young, uh, very experienced man who obviously has found him. He cannot trust this guy for some reason. The other guy can't persuade him and doesn't try hard to persuade him either. If they, it's the most obvious case in the novel of death that comes because men cannot have any loyalty to one another. If they were to band together, they would have won. But since they do not, they are uh, hunted down, apart, and uh, killed. I like that you brought up Carson Wells, the uh, bounty hunter, because I think he's underanalyzed a little bit in the story because he he occupies this space really between the two extremes. We have our anti-hero, you know, Luella Moss, and we have Shigura, who in many ways seems to just he's he seems to just be almost a force of nature. You you spend half of the book wondering if this man is truly evil or if he's simply just a unrecognizable force of nature. He's completely indifferent to his victims and what their hopes and dreams and what they want. He doesn't seem to torture anyone. There are times when he almost appears to play with them in a way, but it, he operates according to a very strict code. It's a code that's almost unrecognizable to us, but it is a code nonetheless. Llewellyn seems to have a code of some sorts as well. Carson Wells doesn't seem to have, doesn't hold to a code much that I can decipher from the novel. He seems to kind of operate in this place between the two extremes. He's also a Vietnam veteran. You know, he he's come home. I believe he says that he was special forces. He comes home uh, and is now working for some kind of somebody else involved with the drug cartel. So he's he's in illegal business ventures. He's probably I think he's also a hitman, if I'm not mistaken. So he kills for money. So he's come home and he's 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 been pursuing money similar to what Llewellyn is doing, except Llewellyn's pursuit of money almost in a way is transcending uh, maybe what Carson Wells is, is, is chasing money for. Llewellyn reminds me in some ways, if you ever watch Warner Herzog's um, Aguirre, he reminds me a little bit of Aguirre that it's not necessarily just for discovering El Dorado. It's, it's the, it's the pursuit itself of reaching beyond your grasp. It almost seems to take, an obsession uh, beyond that for him. But Carson is is very similar to the other individuals on that boat with Aguirre is he's there for El Dorado. He's there for the money um, and wherever that, that will take him. And in the end, he meets an untimely death as well at the hands of Shigur. And when he pleads for his life, it's, it's very different than when Llewellyn faces down Shigur. And I find that that contrast is really interesting. To me, it's I, I don't think that you could understand Shigur any better or Llewellyn without having Carson Wells involving himself with these. And it is interesting to think of an alliance uh, which Carson proposes. But, it you know, it's almost it's almost inevitable that Llewellyn would turn that down because they they are too different. And like you mentioned with Sheriff Bell, Llewellyn and Sheriff Bell just cannot seem to find there is no common ground in a way. This, I think, reinforces the idea of like this dislocation, displacement. Llewellyn is operating in a completely different plane than Carson and even Sheriff Bell. 
And so it, even though I think you're right, I think that an alliance of some sort might have had it yielded a different outcome. It was almost like foreordained not to happen because of the stark contrast between what these men, who these men are and what they're pursuing. Yeah, I think uh, we can um, schematize a bit here. Uh, Sheriff Bell doesn't care about money, but he does care about honor in a certain sense. Uh, it's primarily tied up with the law, the memory of his father, this older lawman, and therefore that vision of America. He was a man who was proud to become sheriff. That's not something you can make yourself. Your country makes you sheriff. Uh, Moss is somewhat aware of love of the noble. That, that's, that must be what drives him because he's so independent. But he also cares about money. He, he has realized that is the only way to get stuff in America. It's not a country where you have land for some reason anymore. It's money. And, uh, and then Carson Wells is a guy who cares not at all about honor and only about money. Moss is somehow, as you suggested, in between the two. But, uh, but they're, in, instead of combining their two peculiar qualities, we should say, what is more all-American than that? Doing well by doing good, you know? Uh, but it doesn't work. It's, after all, a Cormac McCarthy novel. Uh, so th there, there must be something uh, very weak in, uh, in the alliance of these two principles, wealth, advantage, money on the one hand, and honor or uh, personal freedom, uh, some, some claim on human dignity that has to be vindicated against life or the country or the cosmos, maybe, that uh, we see in, as you say, uh, Llewellyn's somewhat desperate uh, adventure. And, uh, and, and these three men are, are to one side, and then there is, uh, I guess this is the last part of the conversation, uh, the evil they are confronted with. Sugar is a guy who wants to get in business with the drug cartels. And therefore, he is something that was not possible before because there was nothing for him to do. Become an enforcer for the cartels and to somehow become part of the business, which is why he wants to retrieve the money and give it back, uh, is, is his life's purpose. Uh, what is he supposed to become? A, a, a drug kingpin? Is he supposed to become some kind of, uh, you know, a, a ruler of an organization that can destroy even more lives that he can possibly kill personally on a one by one basis, which is what he has had to do so far? It seems like he sees a twinship between the business and himself that none of the others do, and that. Uh, and, and, and he's almost solves a kind of problem. Uh, Llewellyn Moss is supposed to be close to an ideal American man. He is young, strong, handsome. He's confident. He's tough. From a certain point of view, that's American freedom embodied. But, uh, but somehow America isn't really that country. Americans still think it is that country, but it's not. Those kinds of virtues don't really count. But perhaps Sugar is the ideal for this other kind of organization that you could say is the sort of like a dark shadow of America or what people say about America when they are afraid or hated. Uh, the, the drug business, after all, could be a kind of perfect capitalism in the sense that it enslaves its consumers, 
when people complain about consumerism or, or and such things that have been going on around, around for centuries in one form or another, after all the old uh, 18th century attack on the bourgeoisie was precisely because they're materialist consumers, as we would say nowadays. Surely you could see a perversion of that uh, idea of bourgeois consumption, of wealth, of prosperity, of having your pleasures and your comforts and insurance to boot. Uh, it could be uh, caricatured and radicalized at the same time in a very McCarthy way in the drug business. It, it is a monstrous thing that comes out of our ordinary way of life. And of course, it helps that uh, it happens to be true. After all, why is Mexico torn by these horrible drug organizations? Because there are all these Americans buying those drugs without meaning to do anything more than have a bit of cocaine or what meth or what have you. People uh, are in America are paying with, for the, 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 the Mexican state to be a horror. Uh, and nobody even notices. But obviously, McCarthy was the kind of guy who always tried to notice what most Americans most of the time won't notice. And, and in a way, I think Shigur, therefore, is supposed to point out what kind of man comes out of this new world. He, he is not a, a reckless killer. He is not a, a simply bloodthirsty or a, you know, a, a mad uh, beast. He is uh, very able, very calculated. He thinks ahead and he doesn't let anything get in his way. In that sense, he is a fit killer for an organization, for organized crime, not for the chaos of the West. He cannot have emerged in the Wild West days, but only in a world where there is enormous organization or order, but not law. I don't think people nowadays can even understand easily what the difference between law and order is. But uh, but look at the drug or organization. Surely it's order, but it is lawless. And, uh, and and so I think the, the fact that this is about the drug trade is not accidental. And the fact that it's the American-Mexican border, both a real problem, but also, of course, a symbol, uh, is, is, is very important also. That somehow is, is supposed to begin to clue us into Sugar's character. Now, there are other episodes in the, in, in the novel and in the movie that are, are supposed to further clue us in. So to speak, to encourage us to notice and to wonder and to worry about things rather than simply be fascinated and repulsed by this seemingly unstoppable evil guy, you can put a lot more to the contour and to the description of, of, of his character than um, this initial but very important and very powerful impression that is somehow evil embodied, maybe a natural evil that is just wreaking havoc everywhere. People can't even believe what's happening. Uh, you know, another one of these symbols is this thing that was became infamous because of the movie, the the blunt instrument he uses to murder people, which is used to slaughter cows, cattle in slaughterhouses. That's that's as you were suggesting who this guy is. He does not take human beings as human, treating them as cattle to be slaughtered seems uh, practical and useful to him. But it also makes him even further inscrutable. People can't figure out how is he killing these people? Where are the bullets if they have holes in their heads? But also they can't think that anybody would do what this guy is doing. They, they are morally averse to the, the thought. This seems to be in a strange sense the advantage this character has. He does things other people find unthinkable. He's a horror. So uh, uh, McCarthy seems uh, to, 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 to load the novel against him 
we, we, we primarily hear from Sheriff Bell and uh, we primarily follow uh, Llewellyn Moss. But there is this catastrophe chasing after them that must eventually catch them that suggests how severe their limitations are and raises questions about how, how we can even understand the evil and then what the problem in America is if people can't anymore understand what they're dealing with, either in its, so to speak, permanent character, that there is such a thing as a horror, the terror that can come upon people, or in its specifically new character that is, is an evil that follows from an incredibly organized and in a way, as people say, pragmatic business. After all, the drug business doesn't enslave millions uh, for, to, to, to damn souls or for fun, but for profit. And sugar seems to be uh, an, an individualization, an embodiment of that problem, hence his calculation, hence his code. But, uh, but, it, but once you turn the organization into an individual, you also have to have some kind of question about why does this guy do what he does in terms of what does he believe makes the world turn? How does he believe he can succeed in the world since he does not do so on the basis of conventional or moral opinion? He is interesting to audiences primarily because he seems to be completely immoral and believes that he is uh, immune from the consequences of that immorality too. Uh, again, it's an embodiment of the drug business. People are taught, uh, you know, decent people are taught that crime doesn't pay. But, uh, but in fact, uh, in certain ways, it does pay. Uh, you could get away with it, not by uh, murdering one man, but by maybe destroying millions. This is what makes it a horror. This is what makes the character of Shukur such a good embodiment of the drug trade and this problem that, that's a, a plague upon a modern America. But at the same time, interesting to think about as an individual, right? He's, he famously tosses coins to see whether he will kill people or not. That is, in those cases where he, there, there's no need as part of his plan, his business plan, to kill them. He, in that case, he leaves it up to chance, but otherwise asserts his will. And, uh, and you could say he's, uh, he's a go-getter American uh, wants to succeed. He will succeed at any cost. He will uh, objectify his will for all these corpses. And he was a man of his word. If he says he'll kill you, he'll kill you. These are all caricatures of, of decent all-American uh, opinions that uh, go, as I said, by the famous phrase, uh, doing well by doing good. But of course, they are uh, radicalized in caricature to the point that they become doing well by doing evil. And uh, more in the novel than in the movie, but in both stories, Sugar suggests this, that he patterns himself on God. Uh, that is to say, he's somehow a devil. He will, what people expect they might get and might be good for them uh, but from God, they can in fact only uh, get from him and it will not be something they enjoy. Uh, I just, I absolutely love that that analysis of sugar i think especially the the part that you mentioned about the him almost being unrecognizable i feel like that's just so such a, a fascinating the way that mccarthy works with this villain is he is unrecognizable in a world that is still violent dangerous and changing he represents almost something outside of it 
you know, he, I find that so interesting that his name is Shagur. It's almost an incomprehensible name to an American who knows where that comes from. In the film, he almost looks like he, you can't really pinpoint what he is. Is he Native American? Is he Indian? Is he Arab? I mean, I, you don't know. He just seems to be a, a step outside completely of anything anybody understands or knows. And then the weapon of his choice is, I do think that's a very uh, powerful touch that he uses a cattle gun, something only used for livestock something no person in this part of Texas who still there might be familiar with processing meat, but they would never imagine that somebody would use this on another human being. They can't quite understand him. And it's, it's interesting that as Sheriff Bell is tracking him and tr trying to find out he it's unlike anything he's ever seen. He's never seen anybody who who's done this. And so all of the actions, he's always a step behind. He can't quite understand him. And it is interesting to me that Moss is curious about Shagur in a way, in a way he, that, that same kind of attraction. It's like, he's, a, has an attraction to Shagur that even in their, they're in a very much in a duel that Llewellyn doesn't just bail. You know, he has this sense of, he wants to go back and it could be his own sense of honor. You know, it could be many things. It could be him testing himself, but he wants to face Shigur. He wants to outsmart Shigur. He wants to defeat Shigur. Whether Shigur is a de demon, if he's violence or you know personified, or if or if he's even just a simple force of nature, that Llewellyn wants to contend with him. And there are many opportunities that Llewellyn has to call it quits. And I wonder if you know with the drug cartels, I wonder if it was just the drug cartels if Llewellyn would have found some way to just bail, take the money disappear and, and live out his life. But in a way he wants to face down Shigur. And I just, that is a really interesting feature of the novel. I think it is very American in a lot of ways, but then McCarthy brings in the tragic, right? Because like you mentioned, uh, Llewellyn does not survive. And I think that that's really important. That might be where this McCarthy always seems, I, I said this in my article a little bit, talking about his relationship with Southern literature and how McCarthy then goes out West. And this is really where he comes into being is as a, a really monumental writer, but McCarthy goes always a step further in his novels. And I think he goes a step further in no country for old men is by this becoming a true tragedy in a lot of ways, um, rather than just an exciting crime novel. It's not just a screenplay. And I know he wrote it kind of as a screenplay, but it doesn't, it feels so much fuller than that. And I think it comes down to, you know, Llewellyn's demise and what that means and how, obviously, Sheriff Bell, you know, it's interesting that at the end when Sheriff Bell goes, and I like that this is in the film because this was a little bit more um, drawn out in the film than it was in the novel. But Sheriff Bell goes and realizes in some ways that either Shigur was there or he actually is there at the hotel motel room where Llewellyn is killed. And he has this moment where he can he can act, he can do something. If Shigur is actually there, he can confront Shigur. And there's this hesitation, you know, and it's through a doorway. You know, there's this feeling that there is something incomprehensible and all too powerful on the other side of that door. And I just feel like that's such a powerful touch to this novel and what it is for us as Americans as we, I think Americans today feel very dislocated. They feel dispossessed in many ways. And they're dealing with forces that they felt that they had mastery over, that they realized they're woefully inadequate to contend with.
And there's no better representation of that than Shagur. And every one of these characters, in some ways, trying to to grapple with that force. And I, you know, you look at Carson Wells and his death, you look at Llewellyn Moss and his experience with Chigurh, and then finally Sheriff Bell. And we seem to have three different perspectives for three different, you know, maybe kinds of Americans that we have in society today and how they're dealing with this all too powerful force. I just think it's very rich. Yes, indeed. Of course, there is a lot more to say about the movie and the novel, including uh, other characters. But I think looking at these four men with a, a bit of patience may be the best way to help our audience watch this and think about it again and think about the, the, the movie as a story about America, about the past of America and the present of America and the dangers for the future. And uh, to, therefore, to try to arrive at some kind of self-understanding. I think that's what makes the, the, the novel and the movie so powerful. People realized at some level, became somehow aware that this is not just a thing that happens in a small corner of Texas. This is not just about drugs or about uh, Vietnam or about uh, a macho man. It's, it's somehow about the nation as a whole and the, the confrontation with evil, with violence, the need for manliness, but the limits also of manliness as well as of law-abiding men. And uh, that's what makes it hard to, to to fully think through and therefore uh, what makes it so rewarding for sustained reflection. But uh, but I think often enough people will shortchange the characters, the, the the story and some of the dialogue is very interesting and 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 it might lead people not to think long enough about each of these men and why they need the fate they need. And I think McCarthy would wants people, to, to, to see them as, uh, in a certain sense, whole men who, who act for, for reasons of their own and who are therefore led almost inevitably to a fate, as, as you uh, suggested earlier. So uh, I think this should be a, a good way to honor McCarthy and to reflect on America for the occasion of the fourth as well. It is somewhat grim, but not unrelentingly grim. And... Uh, there is something noble in trying to see so what, what what is really happening in America and what the future might hold. I think that's what makes McCarthy such a noble and impressive novelist. He tried to to look at uh, the modern world and America, especially with clear eyes, and to see as much or to understand it as clearly as he, he possibly could. That's uh, certainly something admirable, and uh, I have found it very inspiring in my readings and recent writings on this. It's part of why I thought your essay uh, in I Am on uh, Cormac McCarthy was uh, so important. It, it looked to the to him to see how, how ambitious he was, how much he tried to achieve, therefore, in a way, what he has to offer as a writer and, in a way, also as a guide. So uh, thanks very much for joining me for this conversation. Uh, I hope our audience will see the what, what we have seen and uh, love these stories as we do. And uh, maybe we can find another subject into another podcast, podcast uh, a while down the road.
Titus, it's been a, a privilege of mine. I really do appreciate the conversation. It, it's been fascinating. I love your uh, perspective on this, and I, I do appreciate your time. I'd love to come back whenever you want to have me, so thank you. All right. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, as you know, I've, I've reviewed this novel. I've been talking about it for a while, but up until we sat down to talk, there were all sorts of things I really hadn't thought through. Uh, I was partly saving them for our talk, but partly it's just the conversation itself that makes me think, and for that I'm very grateful. No, thank you very much. All the best. Until next time. Bye-bye.